My guest today is Professor David Linden. He is a neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins. So welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. Thanks for having me. You're also a prolific author who has helped open up your field to people like me and probably many of our listeners who are very curious but don't have the training experience you have. I want to spend most of the time on your most recent book, Unique, which I did find fascinating. And I read it and then reread sections of it, trying to digest it. So there's lots to talk about. But before we jump in there, you know, the thing that I think probably most people have heard of you have read recently is your uh, article, your story in The Atlantic. And I don't really feel like we can begin talking until we talk about that. So mm -hmm. why don't you share sort of your background, but also what's going on with you right now for those people who haven't read the article? Sure. Well, so this article in The Atlantic uh, was something that I wrote as a consequence of my diagnosis uh, uh, several months ago with uh, uh, terminal cancer, mm. a, uh, a cancer called synovial sarcoma. Mm. And uh, I went in for a routine echocardiogram and uh, they said, oh my gosh, what's that big mass poking up next to your heart? Mm. And remarkably, I felt fine. You know, that we would think that with something the size of a Coke can pressing against your heart, you would have some symptoms, mm. but I didn't. You know, I could exercise at, at full capacity. But they said, yeah, this thing's got to have to come out. You're going to have to have heart surgery. So I went in and had a heart surgery. Mm -hmm. And then they biopsied it. And uh, what they found out was, as I mentioned, that it's this uh, uh, reasonably rare cancer called synovial sarcoma. So what this means, according to my oncologist, is that I have six to 18 months to live. Mm -hmm. And so my article in The Atlantic was really about, well, so what has this made me think about brain functioning because you know i'm a geek and i can't stop being curious it's what you've dedicated your career to and also your sort of public persona to as well so you're sort of you're a highly insightful person who has made a whole history of studying the mind the biology and also the tricks the mind can play on us in a way you're like the most qualified person i've ever run across to sort of examine this right in the middle of this it's kind of unbelievable. Well, you know, it, it's kind of a coping strategy a little bit, yeah. right? Because, you know, it's traumatic to learn that you have six to 18 months to live. Terrifying. And, uh, you know, you feel like you're not really in the driver's seat anymore. And so one way to have a sense of control, to have a sense of agency is to not stop being curious and to be mm. introspective and to say, well, what, what have I, what does this reveal? to me about what I care about most, which is human mental function. And there were really two main things that that occurred to me. One of them is that really, really reinforces this idea that's become, I think, really dominant in neuroscience, which is that the brain is not built to give us the lowdown about the external world. In other words, <laughs> There's no way to have pure sensory information, to have the unvarnished truth about the world come to you because uh, you are hardwired to take that raw information and manipulate it and spin it by your emotional state, by expectations, by your prior experience. So one way to think about this, we've all had the experience of uh, 
being bored for a half an hour waiting in line at the Department of Motor Vehicles. And you think, oh, God, when is this ever going to end? But the same amount of time, if you're having a conversation you know, over beer or coffee with a friend, just flies by. Oh, my gosh, that yeah. half an hour happened in a second. And I could there's no, There's no objective truth. Time there's is the classic example of it. Time is the classic example of it, but you know it comes up in 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 many ways. Uh, one of the examples yes. I like to use comes from the sense of touch, which I wrote one of my books about, and that uh, is you know imagine you're in a loving, connected time with your sweetheart, and they give you a caress on the arm. You go, oh, that's nice. And then imagine the very same caress on your arm, very same from the same person, same place on your arm, the same pressure, the same dynamics. But instead, it's in the middle of an unresolved argument. Well, it doesn't feel the same way at all. It doesn't right. feel good. It feels like a bug. You're like, hey, what are almost, you doing? No, no, we're in the middle of this argument. Get your hands off of me. And it's not like, well, the pure sensory experience first feels the same, but then only later on reflection do you feel different about it. It feels yeah. different from the very first moment that you are having that sensation. And so this is brought home to me in the context of my own demise, mm. because if I do a thought experiment and I imagine someone before my diagnosis coming to me and saying, oh, you've got five years to live, I would have been, oh, no, I'm, you know, 60 years old. So I'm hoping to have, you know, with, without this diagnosis, I'd be hoping to have quite a bit more than five years to live. I would say, right. oh, no, that's terrible. What do you mean? I feel so cheated. This is unfair. Now, with my present diagnosis, if someone said, you got five years to live, I'd be like, yeehaw, that's great. I can get a lot done Ugh. in five years. So, so something as fundamental as five years of life that you would think would be you know, one of these bedrock things that we would have a certain perception and feeling about are themselves malleable based upon circumstance, based upon expectation. You, you'd said in one of your book, in one of your talks, not I'm not not unique. I want to get there, but you said the brain is a mess. <laughs> and in addition to the no objective experience, you also talked in your Atlantic article about contradictory states of mind. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. I did, and and you know, in in classically in neuroscience, we we tend to think about oh, the brain is in a particular state. You know, you're scared, you're hungry, you're exploratory. Uh, you're resting and digesting. No, not you're you're fleeing or you're fighting. But in truth, you know, our brains are complicated, and we can we can inhabit more than one mental state at a time, even if these mental states are contradictory. And I think most people thinking about it realize this. You know, I'm just a little thick, and it it took this experience of my illness to bring it home that I was feeling simultaneously you know, white hot furious with the universe for getting heart cancer. I mean, heart cancer? Nobody gets heart cancer. When, <sighs> when's the last time you heard about someone with heart cancer? Well, I've got bloody heart cancer, right? Mm. And I'm going to die of it soon. And that stinks. But mm. at the same time, feeling deeply grateful because I've had a wonderful life with wonderful people around me and great opportunities and the experience to do lots of things and lots of privilege and, and lots of wonderful experiences. So I can feel simultaneously angry and grateful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think this is something that if you look in a lot of religious teachings, both Christian ones and Jewish ones and Buddhist ones, actually, this is not a new idea. 
Right. You know. And I would say in terms of in terms of literature, my mind immediately goes to Proust. I mean, that's what he was describing. It took five volumes to do it, but it's all about contradictory states of mind. It is. That you're eating something and then all of a sudden your mind jumps somewhere else. And that sort of associative nature of of, of the way we go through life. Very, very good. Yes, good example. And but I think the most important thing, the most important realization. I had as a result of my diagnosis about mental function really has to do with prediction. Okay. And I'm old and I've I've been a neuroscientist for a long time, over 40 years. And when I joined the field, the basic model of the brain is that it sits there waiting for something to happen. Mm. You're sitting there, la da 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 da. Oh, I see something with my eyes, or I taste something with my tongue, or I feel something with my skin. And those messages come into the brain, and then your brain does some computations. Maybe you make a decision, and then you do some action. You know, you move your muscles, you move your muscles to make speech, you know, and behavior comes out. But in this model, the brain is fundamentally a reactive thing. And, and we now know from, from many different uh, kinds of experiments, including brain imaging in humans and also brain recording in critters, that that's not the way it works. The brain isn't just sitting there waiting. The brain is actively a prediction machine. While you're sitting there, the brain is expending a lot of energy trying to figure out what's going to happen in the next few moments. Is that person walking at me to, towards me down the street, friend or foe? Am I likely to become hungry soon? And how should I plan my day as a result, right? The brain is always doing these predictions. And the fact that the brain is trying to predict and really trying to predict not so much about the far future, but about the immediate future, mm. this all presupposes that there will be an immediate future. Right. And of course, when you're dead, there is no immediate future. It's oh just my God. done. And so in this way, I think, our brains are hardwired to not truly engage with our own demise and, and with the idea of a world without us in it. And so, you know, in my own case, right, I know I'm going to die soon. And so I can do practical stuff. You know, I make sure my will is in order and my finances. I can write recommendation letters to the people in my lab so they'll be there when I'm gone so that, you know, they have them for the next phase of their career, all this practical stuff I can do. But when I really try to engage with my own demise, I think, you know, my mind skates over the glossy surface of it. I don't think it's possible to engage deeply. And, and I don't think this is a personal failing. I think it is something basic and human. It seems bizarre to me that I'm even pushing back on anything that you say. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I just want to let you talk and then hang up and let you use these this so precious time. In your book, though, Unique, is it part of the message of the book how varied our range of responses is? and how unique it could be. Yeah, so... In other words, somebody else could disengage or fall into a deep depression, and it seems like your response is sharing what you're going through, almost like you yourself become another piece of data in your quest, your curiosity. Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly true. And, you know, we all become unique through developmental happenstance and experience in the world and what we inherit from our parents, and we'll get to that. What I would say is that much in the same way that every single baby in the world is born with uh, being aversive to bitter taste, 
Mm-hmm. Right. If you give them a bitter taste in their mouth when they're born, right. before they have accumulated any experience in the world, they'll all make the yuck face <laughs> all over the world. Doesn't matter how your parents raise you, what culture you're in, whether you're in a cold place, a hot place, the tropics, the Arctic, it doesn't matter. All babies will do that. It's a human hardwired universal. I would contend that our human inability to truly engage with our own demise is similarly hardwired. Mm. That while one's strategies for dealing with it can be unique across individuals, mm-hmm. that there is a basal level of it that, that comes with being human. And what I would say is that this is important not just on an individual level, but on a societal level. And what I mm. mean by that is if you look uh, if you ask cultural anthropologists who you know look at cultures all over the world, and they would say, and you say, well, how many cultures in their thought have the idea of an afterlife, or reincarnation, or an idea that you fuse with the divine after you die? And cultural anthropologists will say, well, not absolutely everywhere, but almost absolutely everywhere do you have it. Almost all Mm. of the world's major religions, not all, but almost all do. And almost everywhere do you have these kinds of ideas. Mm. It's it's not quite a universal, but it's close to uh, a universal cross-culturally. And so what I would say is that the prevalence of these afterlife reincarnation stories all around the world ultimately flows from human predictive thought. In other mm-hmm. words, it ultimately mm-hmm. flows from the fact that we're always trying to predict the near future, presupposing a near future, which then makes it very difficult for us to truly engage with our own demise that is that is a sharp ending. And so as a consequence, we humans have developed these afterlife reincarnation fusion with the divine stories and when we think about you know how these stories and how faiths have molded human history and the conflicts between faiths have molded human history mm-hmm. you know i think this is something that turns out to be pretty important in the way uh in the way uh the human experience has has been uh over the years in what way? What do you what what's what do you take away from that commonality? Well, that it's sort of been essential to the existence, the the continuation of the tribe, that belief. Well, you know, I think so much human conflict has been interreligious human conflict. Yes, even faiths where you would say, well, you're getting down to some pretty subtle differences: Catholics versus <laughs> Protestants. Well, there's big wars right. about that: Sunni versus Shia Muslims. Right? Right. This flavor of Buddhist versus, versus that flavor of Buddhist. All these times there have been conflicts and wars, and people have died, and borders have moved, and nations have been formed. But you're saying that the essential belief as, is, the core. you know, as a result of these of of, of these conflicts of 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 faith and these faiths ultimately Uh derive from afterlife stories and these afterlife stories ultimately derive i think from this bug in the brain right that comes from us wanting to be prediction machines all the time let's jump to your book unique so there is, uh, you've written a number of books. This is your most recent one. There is a lot in this uh, book. But let me try to just say what I took away as the summary 
and you tell me whether I got it right, and then we can maybe dig into where I'm wrong or dig into these things. So the key sentence to me in the book was in terms of what leads us to be like we are, you the statement, hereditary, interacting with experience, filtered through the inherent randomness of development. And in your book, you're, this relates to height and weight, but also sexual preference, smell, sleep, intelligence. So that mixture of the hereditary, the experience, and the randomness coming together having these fundamental drivers. So if you're looking at the explanations for any of those things, and probably the most controversial and really fascinating I would love to talk about is, is towards the end of your book about intelligence, you have to look at it through that prism. Is that, the, is, that, is, that, is that what you were trying to convey? It is. And I think specifically when I make that statement about individual traits come about from heredity interacting with experience broadly defined, uh, filtered through the inherent random nature of development. What I'm doing is I'm contrasting that with the popular phrase nature versus nurture, right. which is often used as a, a similar explanation. But I have two problems with nature versus nurture. So first of all, yeah, you got it right, basically. I think you you zeroed in on the key point. It only took me a reading it twice, but thank you. <laughs> 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 well, if I'd written it better, you would have gotten it the first time. So that's on me. Um, so, uh, yeah, first of all, I have a problem with versus. The idea that your experience and what you inherit are somehow in competition with each other because it's it's not true at all. In other words, these things interact. Sometimes they even reinforce each other. For example, if you are fortunate enough to be born with innate athletic ability and you're good at sports, then you're more likely to play sports and practice sports and get even mm. better at sports through your experience mm. of playing and practicing. So this isn't nature versus experience. This isn't heredity versus experience. This is heredity and experience coming together and interacting. A good example of this is the genetic disease called phenylketonuria, which uh, in order to get it, you have to inherit from both your parents a broken version of a gene that encodes an enzyme that breaks down the amino acid, mm -hmm. phenylalanine. And so uh, if you inherit this, that's one thing. But in order to actually get the disease, you have to eat foods that are rich in phenylalanine. If you have a diet that doesn't have much phenylalanine in it, you'll never have the disease phenylketonuria, mm. right? So two things have to happen. A genetic thing has to happen. You got to inherit these mm. broken genes from both your parents because mm. it's a recessive trait. And then you also have to eat foods rich in phenylalanine. And you can cure it by having a diet that has foods that are only low in phenylalanine. So that's an exa another example where versus falls down. But the thing that really gets me exercised is the word nurture, because what nurture means is how your parents raised you or your community raised you or how they failed to or how they neglected you or abused you in unfortunate cases. And of course, our experience in the world is much broader than that. It's much broader than even all social experience. Experience broadly considered means everything that happens from the moment you were conceived in utero to right. your last day. And it includes things like the diseases your mother 
fought off while you right. were in her womb to the the foods you eat early in life and the temperature that exists uh, uh, early in life to everything that Im- impacts upon you during that time. So we got to replace nurture, which is very narrow and mostly has to do with your parents and social experience with experience broadly considered right. encompassing. And this whole thing is in motion. In other words, the way we nurture is shifting all the time. The culture is shifting, how you raise people. Of course, certain things are, you know, you hold babies when they're young, whatever, or else at, at dire risk. But you create a picture of something that is evolving that I found really fascinating. And one of the more controversial, but I really thought revealing things was your description. This is later in the book of intelligence tests on the Irish versus the British. And I just want to slow down and unpack this thing because I thought it was so interesting. The, the essence of it was if, in other words, if you look at something like intelligence, which is obviously super controversial to talk about, if you use that old framework of nature versus nurture, which you're not. But if you use this framework, it's it's unbelievably complicated topic to talk about. And what you're describing is, is 50 years ago, basically, when they did standard intelligence tests, which may or may not be accurate. So put that aside for a second. But if you did, there was in the data you cite a significant difference between these two populations. However, years later, there was not. And it speaks to a huge shift in the economic circumstances, which then relates to how you're raising the kids, et cetera. I thought this was really powerful idea. Can you can can we linger on that a little bit? Yeah. Well, so I think it's important when we talk about human traits to realize that most human traits, whether they're behavioral complicated traits like intelligence, or even really basic traits like height, they can have Mm. a heritable component. That is, there can be a fraction of them that is explained by heritability. So for example, in the United States, Mm -hmm. about 85% of the variation in height is determined by the genes you get from your mother and father. That makes it one of the most heritable traits we know. Nonetheless, when you say, well, does that mean that there is one gene for height or a small number of genes for height? No, Mm. it doesn't. Actually, there are thousands of genes for height. There are only 19,000 genes in the human genome, but of those, two to three 3,000 of them seem to contribute to the trait of height. So it's highly heritable, but it's also what we call polygenic, meaning that it's determined by the subtle, tiny interactions of variations in many, 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 many different genes. And this is true for something basic like height, but it's also true for every behavioral trait that we have ever been able to measure from things that the psychologists uh, uh, measure in personality tests like agreeableness and neuroticism and and risk-taking and an outgoing nature to things uh, that happen pathologically like schizophrenia, which is an example of a highly heritable neuropsychiatric disease. Mm -hmm. So something can be very heritable, but there is no single gene for it, or even a small number of genes for it. The other thing that I think is really important is that this number of herit- this, this heritability number only holds for a particular population. So I said 85% of the variability in height can be attributed to genes in the United States. But if you go someplace that's really poor, like rural Bolivia, 
Now only 50% of the variation in height can be attributed to genes. Well, why is that? It's because right. people can't live up to their genetic potential right. for height when they're being malnourished, when they are subject to lots of communicable diseases that they're fighting off, and when they maybe have to use environmental toxins in their, in their workplace, all of these things will tend to stunt their growth and mean that the genetic contribution for height is less heritable in that population than it is in a more affluent culture. And the very same thing is true for intelligence. So this is huge right here. I mean, this is a really, really big idea because in a, further, in a previous part of the book, there's this notion that's sort of in pop psychology now about this intergenerational trauma going through. And somebody had posited that, oh, that maybe there's a genetic change. And you looked at the data and you said hogwash. Well, yeah. And, and, and just to be clear, what I said is right, right now, there's no evidence for it. I don't have religion on this. In other words, if tomorrow right, someone showed that there was compelling evidence for transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. That is to say that your grandparents' trauma could be communicated to you right, right, right. via uh, uh, marks in the genome. I'm open to believing that. I'm just saying that right now, the evidence for it is, is not believable. You cite earlier in the book that this thing was, that the height is mostly a genetic characteristics comes from the study of twins in Minnesota, if I got the data source right. But the reason why it wouldn't matter in another place is if everybody can get good food, then the genetic thing dominates. If everybody can't get good food, then it does not because the people that can eat things that'll make you grow are going to grow much higher. That to me was huge, particularly for somebody who comes from an economic perspective, because the economic shifts in the world have been so substantial over the last 150 years, but also so disparate, some places having them more than others. And so then to relate it back to the study you had of Ireland, that makes a ton of sense, which is that if you have a lot of childhood poverty, it's going to impact the way people grow up. And if you begin to diminish that, you're going to begin to see differences in these, what that mix is of the outcomes. And it's not so much the nurture, it's, it's the experiences, you would say, filtered through the randomness. That would then have That's a huge absolutely change right. So in, in this particular is. case, uh, in about 1960, standardized IQ tests were delivered to, uh, uh, to Irish kids and Irish adults and to a similar population in the UK. And they found that in the UK, the scores were significantly higher than they were among the Irish. And, you know, the Irish in 1960s, there was a lot of poverty. Public health wasn't very good. It was a much poorer country. And yeah. Ireland, to its credit, had an enormous, oddly successful economic and coming with it public health improvement uh, over a couple of generations, such that- the Celtic tiger, they called it. And, uh, that's right. And, 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 and yeah. so then when you go do the same measurements in, say, 2010, 50 years later, right? So two, two and a half generations later, now the Irish have caught up and they are indistinguishable from the English. Now, this isn't because of any genetic change that's accumulated in those populations in those years. I mean, right. both Ireland and England have had a, a small degree numerically of migration, 
right? There's a few mutations right. that accumulated, but basically, genetically, these are the same populations that they were two, two and a half generations ago. Right. What's changed is the experience. And again, by experience, I don't just mean social experience. I mean everything. I mean nutrition. I mean public yeah. health. But also social experience is important. We know that for kids to fulfill their promise for intelligence, they got to have time to play. They often not like be shoved off to yeah. work in the factory when they're young and be curious. Yeah. They have to have their, their parents have enough time to be able to read to them and not be at work constantly. Right. All of these factors come into play to give an example of how it gets very complicated to think about genetics when you're comparing populations. And this comes up a lot and, and underlies a lot of, of, of racism. Yes. So, so, you know, people will say, oh, all right, well, you know, I think that this group is genetically inferior and that's why they're IQ test score is is lower. Again, assuming that IQ test score even is is valid. And let's, as you said, that's a whole other argument. Right. So we'll just assume that it has at least some partial validity for the moment. But let me give you this example. So body mass index is a trait that is highly heritable. Mm -hmm. uh, not as quite as heritable as height, but pretty good. Maybe 60, 65% in the United States. If you measure body mass index in the USA and in France, uh, Americans are significantly heavier than French people on mm -hmm. average. Well, Kelsa, please. <laughs> this is a trait that's highly heritable, and it's highly heritable in France, and it's highly heritable in the US. So you would say, well, doesn't that mean that the difference between the French and the Americans in the trait of body mass index is a genetic difference. No, it doesn't. Right. The reason that Americans are fatter than French people on average isn't because of their significant genetic differences between French people and Americans. It's because Americans eat more calorically dense foods and they exercise less. That's the reason. <laughs> so just because a trait is heritable doesn't mean that the heritable nature of that trait underlies the difference between populations. This gets to, you know, one of the most delicate parts of the book, but I thought really quite profound. You, you talk about this very controversial book that came up. This is on page 243, The Bell Curve. And I remember I was at a debate in college in the 80s. And there was this debate between one African-American student and then one guy who was basically anti-affirmative action. Mm -hmm. And it there were hundreds of students there and they were having this debate about this very, very sensitive topic. The anti-affirmative action guy was like, just have these IQ tests and listen, if you look at the IQs, you get these outcomes, that's what's fair, boom, march ahead. And then the other guy uh, was basically saying, you know, those tests aren't accurate. And neither, I'm not a big fan of the IQ test, but neither argument was satisfying to me. But I was 20 years old and I had no idea how to explore that. This conversation that we're having right now made a ton of sense to me, which is that they could both be accurate and wrong at the same time, because they could be accurate in reflecting, on average, huge income inequalities that have existed and were sort of hardwired into the system, a little bit like what was going on in Ireland. And now, I would say in the last decades, have been hardwired out of the system. 
So anyways, that's what I was reading. That's the thoughts that go through my mind, but I don't know whether, you know, you're the person who's writing the research, if that, if that seems warm to you. Well, yeah, uh, I don't know what hardwired out of the system means. Actually. In other words, it used to be that it would be it, that there was redlining in neighborhoods that you literally couldn't get credit, which then makes gathering income and being able to have a good childhood, you know, have a have income stability for your children and offer them opportunities. Legally, that used to be almost impossible in the United States for African Americans. Yeah, and now it still happens. It's just not the law. It's just not, exactly. It doesn't happen to the same degree that it did. I mean, I think the the important thing that the science can offer, and I have a lecture that I've done actually all around the world now over the last couple of years called The Scientific Case Against Racism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you get down to it, what, you know, the racist argument has been, you said, well, look, Around the world, there are these, you know, there are these different environments, and some of them were more challenging than others. Like maybe it was harder to get food and make a society in Europe than it was in Africa, right? For example. And so as a result, there wasn't as much selective pressure to be clever in Africa. And so a racist would then say, well, that's why people of African ancestry aren't as bright as people of European ancestry. Right. And this argument is horseshit on so many levels, but one of the main ways it's horseshit is that while it's true that there is selection for environments, it's only local selection. In other words, there is no environment of Africa, right? right. Africa has high mountains, it has jungles, right, it has right. plains, temperate coastline, all these different environments. Same with Europe, it has all these different kinds of environments. So to talk about the environment of a continent yep. like Europe or the environment of Africa as a driver Right. for for genetic difference just doesn't hold up right also when you go look at the kind of traits that people are making claims for you know traits like impulsiveness or uh intelligence well as i mentioned these traits are seem to be uh uh first of all only partly heritable right so you know people people argue about the heritability of a trait like intelligence, but in the US, something like 40% of the variation in IQ test score uh, seems to be uh, explained by the uh, the genes that you inherit. And again, that's using the entire US as a population. If you broke that down, it might be different for different, so it might be different for poor people, for right, example, right. than it is for the middle class or the wealthy, as we discussed. But first of all, that leaves a whole lot of things that aren't heritability. And second of all, in the heritable part, this kind of trait is highly polygenic. It is produced by the sums, subtle uh, variations in hundreds or thousands of different genes. And the racists, right. like the authors of The Bell Curve, have been saying now for decades, because it's a long time since that book came out, right. just wait and pretty soon, the genetics will show us exactly how black and brown people are inferior to white people in a trait like right. intelligence. Well, put up or shut up. It hasn't been shown. 
Right. right. In other words, well, it seems like the evidence is going the exact opposite. The evidence is going the exact opposite. In other words, we now have we we can say through through a kind of study called the genome wide association study, we do have candidate genes, a very long list of them that contribute to the trait of intelligence test score. Uh, for example, but each one of these genes contributes an impossibly tiny fractional effect. Right. And there is no data that says, all right, if we look people who do poorly on an intelligence test and people who do very well on an intelligence test, we can line these up and say, all right, here's the list of genes that is particularly important for this trait. No. That that has not right. that has not occurred at this moment. Yeah, one of the one of the precepts for this podcast is related to a subsect is basically that you can learn a lot by following the money. And it's not the only perspective, but it is a perspective. But hearing you tell the story and thinking about Ireland, the shifts in, in wealth in the United States certainly suggests to me there's a lot of power from that. You also address in the book sexual preference, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was another interesting example. You said it basically it has it has this same mix of the hereditary with the experience of the inherent randomness. Can you talk about that a little bit as well? It's really poorly understood. So if we ask, you know, by doing twin studies and, you know, uh, relative studies, what fraction of sexual orientation appears to be heritable? Mm -hmm. The answer is for cisgendered men, it's about 40%. What's cisgendered men? Can you say uh, uh, men whose whose sexual I- identity corresponds to the chromos- the sex they were assigned at birth, mm-hmm. right? And for cisgendered women, it's about twenty percent. So first of all, men and women aren't the same. It's not like there's one trait, sexual orientation, that has a heritability. Mm. It's different. Yep. So you, you might ask, well, how does how is this hold for transgendered folks? Well, the truth is we don't even know because. Th- the, the studies haven't been done. The populations are small. Uh, it's a really interesting open question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right now, I'm not talking about who you feel yourself to be, which is sexual identity. I'm talking about sexual orientation, meaning who you are attracted to, okay. if anyone. Let's take the female case, 20% of the variation. Well, that's not very much. You know, there is a heritable component there, but it's a pretty small fraction. That leaves... for other things. Well, what are the other things? So they are experienced broadly considered. And as we mentioned, but didn't really explore earlier, it's also developmental randomness. So what is developmental randomness? It means that our DNA isn't a perfect blueprint down to the finest nut and bolt for building our body. So for example, in our brains, you know, we've got billions of neurons and and trillions of connections uh, in our brains, and there is no genetically specified precise wiring diagram. It's rather, it's an approximate wiring diagram. And even in monozygotic twins that have the very same DNA, these are so-called identical twins. I don't like to really Uh use that phrase because they're not really identical. You know, when you look (laughs) even at birth, two monozygotic twins that have the same DNA and lay right next to each other in the womb for their development, still when they're born, they don't look exactly alike. They don't behave exactly alike. If you do scans of their body, their organs aren't exactly the same shape and size. So they're not really identical. And so where does that non-identicality come from? What it comes from uh, is 
subtle things having to do with their experience in the womb, but more importantly, it comes from the randomness of development. The fact that given a set of approximate instructions, you never come out with exactly the same outcome. Uh, the geneticist Kevin Mitchell has a wonderful expression that I like, which is you can't bake the same cake twice. You know, even if you're following the same recipe, it's going to be a little different every single time. And that little difference is uh, uh, is is randomness in development. So when we want to ask in a trait like sexual orientation, what accounts for the 80% that's not heritable? Well, you know, we don't entirely know. What we do know is that how your parents raise you seems to have very little to do with it. Very briefly, you had one statement in another statement of the book that your brain, actually, if you begin to focus on one thing, it can begin to shrink in other areas. And you had the example of the London taxi drivers who would need to memorize all these streets, but then they have breakdowns. Like you just briefly on that, that if you're really focused in, in, in one area, develop it, there's actually a diminution and weakening in other areas. Did I get that right? There, there is some argument in the field about these results, but you know it's been known for a long time that if you practice certain things, that the, the, the brain area that represents them can get slightly larger. So one of the classic ideas is that La London taxi drivers who aren't allowed to use computer navigation and have to memorize uh, like every restaurant in central right, London right, right. and every location that somebody might want to go to, and that's quite the task to do, and it takes people years to do it that those people have a part of the brain called the hippocampus that seems to be devoted to this kind of information, uh, a portion of it grows a little bit, uh, whereas another adjacent portion seems to shrink a little bit. And the claim has been that the cognitive skills that of the part that shrinks are diminished slightly. So there's no free lunch. <laughs> you're, you're concentrating on one thing, something else gets a little better. We know, for example, that if you play the violin, that the part of your brain that represents the touch and the motor control for your fingering hand becomes larger than the part uh, for your bowing hand, presumably because more skilled movements yep. are required for fingering than for bowing. Similar things uh, can occur when you learn a, a motor skill like juggling. There seems to be an increase in the volume of brain tissue that represents that skill. But whether this is a universal, that doing this makes you pay in another area, I would say we don't know whether that is an absolutely uh, you know, universal truism for the brain that we have X amount of capacity. And if you use it in one area, you're going to have to have it diminished in another. You talk some here about the long-term consequence of the 1918 pandemic. Have you given any thought to this pandemic that we're living through right now? If you thought about some of the possible ramifications we might see down the line? Yeah, well, I think there's lots of ramifications. You know, the relation to the 1918 flu that you're referring to is that we know very strongly that the incidence of both schizophrenia and autism increased among children whose mothers were carrying them in the winter of 1918 uh, when the pandemic flu was rampant. And the hypothesis from animal studies is that when pregnant mothers are infected with the flu, their body fights off the flu. This involves a kind of a molecule called a cytokine, and that one particular cytokine 
crosses through the placenta into the developing fetus and affects brain development that later when that child is born and grows up can manifest as an increase in the rate of schizophrenia in the population from about 1% to about 4%, or in the rate of autism in the population, again, from about 1% to about 4%. Now, whether a similar thing will happen with babies who were carried during uh, the COVID pandemic uh, is an open question. It could be, uh, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it may be that the cytokines that are produced in response to COVID infection are different and that these don't affect brain development in this way, or maybe they do, or maybe they will affect brain development in a way that is problematic, but different than what happened in the uh, influenza pandemic of uh of, of 1918. So there are certainly all those things that we're only going to know when this population ages up in, you know, 20 years or so. But of course, there are also all the effects of isolation, social isolation during the pandemic. And those are, those are also interesting and important. The podcast is Things I Didn't Learn in School. What if you look back on your career, where you are now, and all this research, if you sort of were to distill for more of a broader audience, the biggest things that you've learned through this journey that you didn't learn in school, any, any thoughts you'd share with listeners? Yeah, I would say maybe the most important thing uh, that I've learned and the field of neuroscience and learned, has learned in general is that it's very easy to us, for us to imagine that in terms of our mental lives, that there is... Uh, you know, there, there was the realm of biology with drugs and, and neurotransmitters and genes and chemicals and neuroanatomy and brain scanners, and that there is another realm involved with things like, you know, disappointment and love and faith and, and feelings and friendship. And, and what I would say is that this is a false dichotomy. These mm. things interact. We know that social experience and our experience in the world, all our interactions with humans, uh, that they change our brains. Mm -hmm. When talking cure psychotherapy works, and it often does work, mm. it doesn't work in a completely separate, airy-fairy realm. Right. It works ultimately because it changes the biology of your brain, right? Right. And likewise, the biology of your brain isn't this immutable, genetically determined, hardwired computer that forges on depending on what you do, you know, independent of what you do, it is this device that is built to be social, built to be plastic, built to be changed by all the experiences that impinge upon us, uh, including mm. social experience. So when you have your heart broken in love, when your feelings are hurt, this co-ops the same circuitry in your brain that happens when you stub your toe. Hurt mm. isn't a metaphor for what happens to us emotionally. It is literally overlaps right. with what happens when we stub our toe. Yeah. What I would say is that there is a constant interplay you know, between our experience and our and our biology. And it is that which makes our human experience and which makes our lives uh, uh, rich and wonderful. Yeah, that's that's very beautifully said. That That's one of the things I took away from reading this book and, and uh, other writing of yours, listening to talks is 
it's basically just a different language, a different perspective, a biological, neurological perspective on describing the same type of events and experiences people are feeling in other realms and they're approaching to. And you even talked about that. I think in one of your talks, you said you describe somebody as tactless, meaning somebody who has poor social skills, but tact is touch and touch is connection and connection is all the things that are going on in your mind when it gets lit up. And so it's sort of like a continuation through from one realm to another, different language. That's right. I mean, it really comes up in the sense of touch and it comes up with the ideas of warmth. The idea that someone who's warm is someone who's not a threat, who is an ally, is something that's broadly cross-cultural. And there is a deeply biological root for that. The reason that uh, we say we had a rough day, again, that's a tactile thing. Oh, yes. it was a smooth experience when everything went well. Yeah. well. That person is tactless, meaning that they are socially inept. The reason that these are all touch metaphors speaks to the fact that touch is an inherently social sense. Yes, you don't have to, but all the the guests we have here, I said, you want to ask me anything? Well, I'll ask you, I'll ask you one question. So you've interviewed a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life. What was the most surprising thing that you ever heard from a guest on this podcast? There's been so many of them, but I think that one thing that somebody said that actually I think relates to you. Well, I had uh, FBI director, former director, Jim Comey on the podcast. And he's obviously made a career out of investigating people. That's what they do. And I asked him for his biggest life lesson. And he said, he said, honest people are very rare. If we include honesty in the sense of not only telling the truth, but being self-aware about their own foibles. It's not exactly his words, but it's paraphrasing. But what you're saying actually relates to that. Because to some degree, we're hardwired to have those blind spots in terms of just the limitations of our brain, but maybe also the willingness to continue plotting on, even in circumstances like the one you're in right now. Indeed. I guess sometimes there can be miracles, and um, we'll certainly be hoping for one. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. And very, very grateful for you taking the time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack and become a paid subscriber that helps support the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.